0: I'm Jonathan Mosen. It's episode 103 of Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. On the show today, it's been an eventful few days in New Zealand. I'll give you all the rundown on that. Various perspectives on dating when you're blind. More on maths equipment of the past, tech topics and more.
1: Mosin at
0: Large Podcast. Thanks for being here today. Welcome. It's good to have you a part of our community. And if you're listening to this for the first time, because we are streaming live for the first time on Facebook and YouTube at our Mosin at Large Facebook and YouTube presences. Yes, there is now a dedicated Mosin at Large YouTube channel Then a special welcome to you. We want to reach out. We want to be where people are and get as diverse a range of perspectives as we possibly can so it is great to have you here it has been a busy old week we've made some changes at mushroom fm moved to a new server most people have heard about that by now there are a few really good things about this you'll find that the stream quality has improved you will also find that we're back on apple music which is really terrific news in all countries sadly except the uk because Apple Music is licensing tune in for access to third party streams, it does mean that still when you try and listen to Mushroom FM with Apple Music in the UK, you can't because of that legal action in the UK. And we talked about that extensively when it happened. You can go back into the archives and get all the details on that. But if you're not in the UK, then it does mean that you can now ask Siri on your Home Pod or your iThing to play Mushroom FM and it will play it from Apple Music, which is really great. We lost it along the way, and somehow our move to this new server has brought it back again. So many benefits of the move. If you haven't found out about this move, well, you probably aren't listening, actually. <laughs> well, you could be listening on YouTube or Facebook. You can get all the details on this by going to mushroomfm.com slash changes. That's mushroomfm.com slash changes. This is yet another opportunity I have to observe that people are interesting. We've been going through this gradual moving process, you see. So for a while, we just had both streams running at the same time for Mushroom FM. And then we moved to a point where if you listened to the old stream, you got a message at the front saying, if you keep listening this way, you're doomed. Doomed, I tell you. Well, something like that anyway. And then... We eventually stopped broadcasting on the stream altogether. And there's one of those loops, you know, how when radio stations change frequencies or something and they do this and they have a little loop that goes around saying you have to retune. And so we've got one of these loops. And whenever I look at the listener numbers, we always have between two and five people listening to that loop. And it looks like it's often the same two to five people who listen for quite a long time. I don't know whether they're using this loop as a sort of a soporific way to go to sleep because it's about 20 seconds long, just going over and over and over on the old loop. So I don't know what that's about, but you don't have too long to listen to this loop. We're going to be pulling this loop soon because the transition seems to have gone really well. It just fascinates me what people listen to. Also, while we're talking about this and that, I want to say thanks to everyone who attended our first Blind Podcasters Roundtable that takes place on a Monday morning at 7 New Zealand time over on Clubhouse, which at the moment equates to 1 p.m. Eastern time on a Sunday. That's 6 p.m. UK time on a Sunday. That will change as the clocks go forward and back in various locales. But that's the time that it's on now. It's the time that it will be on tomorrow, assuming that you are listening to this live or the day of publication And we're going to be talking on this week's Blind Podcasters Roundtable about blind podcasters using iPhones and high quality microphones that can connect to your iPhone. And blind podcaster John Moore is going to be taking us through that. So do check it out. You can follow me on Clubhouse to get the details about that. I've already scheduled the event and we're going to try and make this a regular thing at that time. But wait, as all the infomercials say, there is more. We now have a club on Clubhouse specifically for blind and low vision podcasters. So whether you're making a podcast at the moment or you want to learn how, this is a place that you can join. And hopefully, blind podcasters will be generous with their knowledge, sharing all sorts of information about tools and tips and tricks and techniques. And if you would like to join that and you are on Clubhouse, then all you have to do is search for the blind pod maker. I'm rather proud of that name. The the blind pod maker, pod maker is all one word. So just search for that in the explore section when you can search for clubs and people, make sure you're choosing clubs to search on and the blind pod maker will come right up and you can join or follow that club. And I hope that it proves to be a valuable resource. In last week's show, I read a review of the podcast that was, in my view, a bit mean-spirited. And I want to thank all the people who have given the podcast a positive rating. I see the average is now up to 4.6. And thank you also to the nine people who took the time to write really kind reviews. I'm particularly grateful to those who took the time to explain that they don't agree with everything I say, but that they feel like people get a fair hearing on the show. And it's something that's all too rare these days, isn't it? People kind of go into their little bubbles and they listen to right-wing talk or left-wing talk or whatever it is. But it is hard to find a forum where you might be exposed to perspectives different from yours. And the fact that there are people who are willing to write these reviews and say, look, I don't agree with everything Jonathan says, but it's interesting and at least everybody has a chance to be heard. That's what I'm aiming for. So thank you very much. I know it takes effort, especially for screen reader users to do these things. So the fact that these nine people took time out of their days to write these reviews really does mean a great deal to me. Now, it has been an eventful week. I was going to mention this, and we've got this email from Beth, who is asking questions. She says, hey, I've been thinking about you NZers over the past couple of days. What have the quakes and tsunami warnings been like, please describe the situation for us. Well, before I get into the description, I want to say thank you, because both Bonnie and I were absolutely deluged, but maybe that's not a very appropriate word to use in the context of a tsunami, with emails and direct messages and text messages and a few mentions on Twitter and all sorts of things like that from people who heard that we had a bit of shakiness going on in New Zealand and were just checking on our well being. So people can be really kind. Thank you so much. We both appreciate that a lot. For those not familiar with this, there were three very large quakes affecting New Zealand to some degree, the largest of which was 8.1. That is a massive magnitude earthquake. And they happened within a few hours of each other. Luckily, they were sent offshore, so there's been no damage or anything like that. The first one occurred at about, I think it was 2.27 (laughs) a.m. We didn't feel them here. Now, some people in Wellington did. I should sidetrack a little bit and tell you a story about this. When Bonnie and I were kind of getting together as a couple, thinking about getting together as a permanent couple in 2013, she came over here for a visit. You know, we're going to talk a bit later about dating when you're blind and when you're young, of course, it's meet the parents, isn't it? But when you get together at our age, it's meet the children. (laughs) That was all pretty important. But anyway, she came over and she said to me, Wellington's notorious for its earthquakes. You know, how bad are they? And I thought, oh, this is kind of like the interview. You know, Does she really want to get into this? And I said to her, I promise you, We very rarely feel them. I've been living in this particular house for four and a half years, and I can honestly say I have never felt any quake of significance, of substance. And literally, just a few hours after she asked that question, there was a massive shake, and the house was carrying on and shaking around. (laughs) I said, I promise you, this is the first quake like this I've ever felt here. And that was a Friday, and then on the Sunday afternoon... We were talking to David, my son, and then there was another massive quake. I mean, to the extent that I yelled to Bonnie, Bonnie, get down. And David thought, are you talking to a dog or something? You know, it sounded like you're talking to a pet, telling it to get off the furniture. But it was a really big quake. And I had to tell her to just uh, get under a table or, or find some shelter So how ironic that she asked that question and we had two quite substantial quakes within the first sort of 72 hours of her being in New Zealand. But we don't tend to feel a lot of quakes. They have to be very major and close to us to even feel them in any way. So we blissfully slept through that quake that occurred at about 2.30 in the morning. We get up at five every morning. I even get up at five... Weekends, too, just to be consistent, and Bonnie and I have coffee together, and then I get on my treadmill and do my meditation and kind of wind up for the day. So when we got up at five, I caught up with the fact that there were tsunami warnings just then they were lifting this the first set of tsunami warnings because we've got a lot of coast in New Zealand, and what they say to you is if you're in a coastal area and we are not, if it's strong or if it's long. Move to higher ground. Don't wait to be told to move to higher ground because you just don't know how long you have before there's going to be some sort of tsunami. We used to call them tidal waves when I was a kid. Now we call them tsunamis. And the emergency alerts were going off as well in some parts of the country. So people had a very rude awakening and were evacuating. And then it seemed like the worst was over. You know, they can't tell for a while just what patterns those waves are going to deliver. So you have to just get up there in case you don't want to be one of those idiots who risks it and then finds that your idiocy has cost you your life. It's a bit of a ridiculous decision. So generally, people in New Zealand are pretty good about this and they will move to higher ground when there are quakes like that. So, by the time the morning news shows came on, you know, some of them came on early, there was rolling coverage, but by the time the regular morning news shows came on, sort of five or six, it was a past tense story. And there were all these great stories of people moving to higher ground and everything. And then I think it was about seven o'clock, there was another really big earthquake. Again, we didn't feel any of these, but I don't think there were tsunami warnings for that middle one. But then sometime after 8, there was the 8.1 off the Kermadex, and that caused pretty much a national tsunami warning to be released for coastal areas. That was very scary. Now, here, because we're nowhere near the coast, it didn't affect us. We didn't feel it. We just went on with life, except that I am chief executive of a national organization. And that final quake, the big one, did affect one of our officers in particular. That was in Whangarei, in the north of the North Island. And our staff there had to move to higher ground urgently. And there was a real possibility that there could have been significant flooding. Uh, we are lucky that we have great leaders around the country and they took decisive, prompt action. The emergency alerts were going off regionally all over the place. And at that point, there was rolling coverage, of course, on all the radio stations that do news, and even some that do not, because it was important for these messages about moving, if you were in one of these affected coastal areas, to be heard by everybody. So everyone did their part. And that lasted quite a while, actually. So the quake hit, I think, just after eight, and it wasn't until... 12.30 or 1 o'clock that the warnings started to be downgraded and people were told, okay, you can go back now. The other complicating factor with this is that Auckland was at COVID alert level 3, so lockdown, and the rest of the country was at COVID alert level 2. And so they had to tell people, look, in this situation, the evacuation warnings override the COVID alert levels because there is a genuine risk to life here. So we got away unscathed, but you can never tell as these tsunami waves start to form. And some of the descriptions that you could hear on the radio were really compelling. You can actually go back into the RNZ podcast feed and listen to some of this coverage because they put it up there in their podcast feed. And you could hear people describing the tide going out when it was supposed to be coming in. And of course, that normally precedes a massive wave. So there certainly were waves. There was a lot of unusual tidal activity, but nothing that really seriously threatened people or anything like that. But it was a pretty dramatic Friday. And thank you for asking, Beth. And again, thanks to everybody who reached out to check how we were doing. It's really nice to know that people care like that
1: be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of mosin at large opt into the mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show you can stop receiving emails anytime to join send a blank email to media subscribe at mosin.org that's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosen at Large. Mosen at Large Podcast.
2: Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair. And yeah, I've got a few thoughts on the whole dating thing. I, I was an online dater for a number of years, uh, long before encountering Sarah, it's funny because I'd largely given up before, you know. Before we hooked up, I I would I was kind of becoming at peace with being single after a long time of not being. But uh, before that point, I came very close to marrying uh, one lady that I met online. We actually got engaged. And it was pretty successful. I chose to reveal right up front that I was blind. And and that did have consequences. Of course, you're, you're then the ambassador for blindness on this service. So you get all the, what's it like being blind? How do you do this, that, and six dozen other things? Uh, all of those questions are, of course, flung at you. I did online and I did phone dating. But one thing I do remember fondly with uh, online dating, what experience I had was a discussion on on whether or not uh, to use photo, uh, you, to include a picture, you know, a photograph of you. And I, uh, you know, this was bandied about on a private chat between a bunch of blind people, and one of them spoke up with this wonderful uh, movie line, uh, you're meddling with powers you cannot possibly comprehend, and, and just all of us cracked up laughing. And there was it was funny, but there was a, a truth to it, you know, especially if you've never seen anything before, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, what does your image really say, uh, about you and what, uh, what are you giving away by showing <laughs> your picture, which you've never seen, you know, uh, all of that stuff, um, that does come into it. So I, I would say, yeah, you know, there's, there's no escaping the visual dominance. I don't think, uh, you know, even on telephone dating where I, uh, you'd think, it would be more accessible and and it it was totally accessible but of course everyone was describing visual stuff a lot of the time on there so it's you know, it's inescapable we're in a world of sighted people we are a minority and at some point you just sort of have to do as the romans do uh and uh, i i was lucky I had a reasonably positive experience uh but uh it is it there is a, a stress <laughs> that that goes along with that That's for sure.
0: Thanks for those really interesting insights, Mike. I also know that it's really important to use photos and videos in certain situations, but I'm a perfectionist and I still struggle with the fact that I can't verify the quality of what I'm putting out there. But of course, other people don't feel the same way and are doing all sorts of stellar things with photography and video and posting to social media. And in a way, the fact that you're a blind photographer is sort of a bit of a brand. People know that in many cases, and they just accept it. Online dating, perhaps a different matter. Here is somebody who has asked to remain anonymous on this subject, who says the below points are generalizations, and I think they mainly apply to younger people. I've learned them the hard way in student life. Now that I have a partner, I'm hopefully off the dating market for good, wouldn't want to be back there. One, In real-world dating, the chance of a match for a blind person is minimal. 1.1. In many situations where people meet, clubs, on the beach, at a conference, dot, 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 sighted persons initiate a date every time they make eye contact with a potential match. This may be hundreds of times per day. A blind person only initiates a form of contact when he engages in conversation. This is not often. 1.2. The sighted data also uses eye contact to judge whether he should approach a potential match. The blind data does this more or less at random, which will inevitably make the blind data much less confident. Cues from which a sighted data can tell that a potential partner is interested are mostly visual. The blind data will pick up other cues, but that takes more time. 1.3. If contact is made and there is a potential match, it usually goes to waste because the potential partner needs to get over the hurdle of dating a blind person. I have often managed to initiate quite deep conversation with nice ladies, but in most contexts, realizing the follow-up just doesn't happen. In this context, both parties are insecure and a lot needs to go right if there is to be a follow-up. This eventually applies to sighted people, but blindness definitely decreases the chance of a follow-up happening. The upside is, if it does happen, you are likely to be a very good match, as it is based on far less superficial communication than the typical dating match. 2. Dating apps slash websites may be an alternative. I never tried. But I would expect that they don't work because communication there is visual and superficial, just like in real-world dating contexts and on social media in general. If I told a potential date I'm blind, she would probably leave it at that. I think daters in such apps are there for the thrill and funny, light-hearted stuff, so I would probably not say it and fail because I missed cues in photos or smileys. If I succeeded in getting an appointment the first impression would not be good and make my date insecure. If we were a real match, we would no doubt get over it, and for a long-term relationship, you need that type of match, which is very rare for sighted daters too. But I think most internet dates end up in superficial sexual contact. Depending on the platform, this is the intended outcome for many users. If you are interested in a one-night stand, you need to minimize discomfort and insecurity. A couple of drinks can help, but blindness does not. Above all, you need to seduce your one-night stand with visual cues. Conversation just doesn't do the trick by itself. Three, and all those problems aside, most congenitally blind men end up single or with a blind partner like you and me. I see three reasons. One point one, common ground. Clearly, the experiences of a congenitally blind kid growing up are incomparable to those of a sighted kid. In our superficial society, young people are used to an easy life, things coming their way, not having to stand out. It is always safer to walk in line with the group. A blind person stands out from the group by definition. This is not a great basis for shared experiences and equal conversation with the typical twenty-something lady, maybe blind daters could try to focus on people who are somehow marginalized or have seen rough edges of life. Essentially, the most likely way for most blind people to do just that is to date another blind person. Three point two, blindness precludes most romantic activities young couples engage in, taking your blind boyfriend to the cinema. Is off limits unless the audio description is very good. If you do some sort of sport, the sighted partner ends up being the guide. Taking care of others and standing out of the crowd are the last thing 20 somethings want. For older people, this may be less problematic, but you still won't enjoy a painting, museum, or safari watching animals from your car together. The options are just far more limited. 3.3. Even the most independent woman ultimately wants a somewhat dominant man who is able to take charge, has his life under control, and provides her care and money. This is a role which most men are biologically and socially conditioned to take on. But between a blind husband and his sighted wife, the roles are inevitably reversed in some areas. The husband is not able to drive his wife around in a fancy car but depends on her for transportation. He cannot take the drill and put a painting on the wall. His wife will have to do that if she can. And who will do the shopping in such a household? Even if the blind man is independent, takes charge in the areas where he can, which are obviously many, and avoids leaning on his wife, the sighted wife is a caregiver in some areas and the blind man has to relinquish power to her in some aspects of his life. We would like to think we are modern and that this is not a problem, and it shouldn't have to be. But fellow males, let's face it, if we are honest to ourselves, we feel far more comfortable in the role of a dominant care provider than the care recipient role where we have to delegate things to a woman because we can't do them ourselves. If this mechanism is at work, it implies that there are more congenitally blind women who marry a sighted man than the other way around. And I think that is actually the case, though I don't have statistics. I think those blind men who were raised with the idea that they depend on others for everything, as often happens to children with overprotective parents or who are institutionalized, are very likely to remain single. A woman, blind or not, is ultimately, at least biologically, looking for a strong man who can protect her. A man who acts like a patient and excessively leans on others just doesn't meet that definition. That ends that email, and oh my word, I am (laughs) anticipating quite a flurry of emails in reply, particularly from women on that subject. I must admit, I think there is an element of misogyny and sexism and stereotypical thinking in that email, uh, but thank you for sharing it. I was on a panel discussion on the BBC uh, two or three years ago now about the different dynamics of being in a relationship with a sighted person as a blind guy or just a blind person in general, versus being in a relationship with another blind person. And there's quite a divergence of views on this. So I look forward to people chiming in with their thoughts. I have experienced both. My first wife, Amanda, who is the mother of my four wonderful children, is sighted. And we were together for 18 years. We met quite young. I was 18 when I met Amanda, and we met in a very conventional way. She was actually the amanuensis for somebody's theory of music exam. I was doing music theory with the Royal Schools of Music and didn't have Amanda as an amanuensis, but we met after the exams and just completely hit it off. We were chatting about all sorts of things and spent the day together just chatting, and it was just amazing. It was just one of those love at first sight, whatever, (laughs) moments. And we stayed together for you know 18 years is a long time and had four wonderful children together. I do agree that you do have to manage the dynamics of a blind-sighted relationship quite carefully, especially when the children come along, because mum can so easily become taxi service and all sorts of other things. And there are ways around it, of course. A blind person can catch an Uber or a taxi or a bus, for that matter, if their kids are somewhere that's on the bus route and pick them up. I used to walk my kids to kindy kindergarten, which in New Zealand is for under fives. And I used to love that. I'd walk down, pick Heidi up, for example, from kindergarten and talk to the teachers and uh, take her home. And sometimes I would do the cab thing. But of course, that does require funds. And if you're under some sort of financial pressure, sometimes it is just easier for the sighted person to do it. I absolutely accept that. And that can put some pressures on the relationship if you feel like it's just easier sometimes for the sighted person to perhaps disproportionately do a certain thing and i guess the question is does it all balance out in the end you know there are many things for example that i contributed to the household in that blind sighted relationship that were of value not the least of which was being a breadwinner and a pretty good one at that and Uh, making sure that the technology was under control and various things like that. So I think it does depend a lot on the personalities. There are also some extremely accomplished blind handymen. And I use the word handymen deliberately because you were saying that blind people can't hang paintings on walls and that sort of thing. I remember a show that was on ACB radio when I was running that. And I think it continued after I was there called The Blind Handyman Show with a guy called Phil Parr. And uh, he's sadly died now, but it was a great show. And the tips and tricks and techniques that they had for doing all sorts of things around the house, changing washes, hanging paintings, all sorts of things like that, it can be done. So often, I think we are constrained by our own perceptions of limitations that may not necessarily exist And so much of your email speaks to me of expectations of blindness that have been set for you or that you've chosen to set for yourself that are really constraining. And I think this is where it's so important for younger blind people to have access to adult blind mentors who can help them through this. It's pretty tough being a young person generally, particularly in your teen years when you're trying to find yourself and work out where you fit in. And then you've got this blindness thing on top of everything. And I do remember when I met Amanda as a teenager, I thought to myself, what would a wonderful, vivacious, beautiful, sighted person see in me? So I was insecure about my blindness as a teenager. And then when I was absolutely stunned to find out that we were together, then it's meet the parents time. And they are wonderful people and I'm still in touch with them. And I remember though that they had all sorts of questions. It's like Mike was just saying about becoming the ambassador for blindness. You know, did they have to do anything before I came over? And it was a pretty unique situation because they were actually running a, uh, an island, believe it or not. It's quite a story and I won't sidetrack the show by going into that, but it was, it was quite a thing. And you kind of think. What are the parents going to say when their precious daughter turns up with this blind guy? So it's really hard to get over those perceptions, and I don't discount that. But don't we also have an obligation to make sure that we equip ourselves with the tools of blindness? And I think one of the tools of blindness is confidence. Others relate to rehabilitation and being able to do things for ourselves so that we're not dependent I think if you've got a good functioning relationship, you care for each other, don't you? I mean, things happened in my life when I was in a relationship with a sighted person where I was down in the dumps, a death in the family or just things weren't going well at work or some drama had happened. And of course, I was grateful for the care and the comfort. But equally, the reverse is true. There's no reason why a blind person can't provide care and comfort and, and and that sort of role. I think we've kind of got past the stage, haven't we, where men are assigned specific roles always and women are assigned specific roles always, although I do take the point that you mentioned at the top of your email that these are quite generalist comments. Romantic things. There are so many things that a blind and sighted person can do together, going out for a meal I don't agree that you have to have audio description to go to a movie. It's always nice to have. But I've enjoyed many movies without audio description. And in fact, it can be quite nice if a sighted person can tell you what's going on. It can be a bonding time. Going to a museum. I love going to museums. I can think of many museums that I've been to around the world with Amanda, who is sighted. And we had great experiences going camping. There's no reason why a blind person can't learn how to help pitch a tent. Anybody can hold a rope unless they have a physical impairment and uh, contribute, and many people can do a lot more than that. Communing with nature, going on a, a lovely walk, couples, massages, gosh, the list is endless. Blindness does not preclude enjoying great romantic experiences with a sighted person, but I tell you what might. It's limiting attitudes about your blindness that might. So finding that balance, setting expectations, assigning tasks, if you like, in a relationship, this is your, I mean, there's no reason why a blind person can't do the dishes, take the recycling out, do all those things. You know, it it can work. There are many wonderful long-term relationships between blind and sighted people. And Bonnie and I are very happy together, but I'm not sure how much of that is because we are blind or just because we happened to meet when I was on business in Boston and she listened to the show for a long time. And then when my marriage ended, we were good friends and we got together. So that was a pretty normal kind of thing. And I think the fact that we're blind may give us, I think you're right, I think it gives us some common interests because a lot of blind people are interested in radio and things like that. But I think fundamentally the fact that we are both blind is kind of incidental. It requires us to run our household in a certain kind of way that would not be required if one of us was sighted. But I don't know if it's one of the things that necessarily attracts us to each other. It's kind of incidental, if you see what I mean. The person who wrote this next email did not ask to remain anonymous, but I'm just going to err on the side of caution because you can't unidentify someone and it's quite a vulnerable email. So I think I would rather play on the safe side. It says, hi, Jonathan, just thought I would share my thoughts on the whole dating conversation. I'm a person who has never had any form of relationship experience or even any dating experience in my life. When I was about four years old, an occupational therapist said to my parents and me, and I quote, Once your son is old enough to start dating, you will probably have to tag along just to show him where to put his hands. Misconceptions were around back then, even though many of us didn't realize it at the time. I don't think it would have mattered if I was blind or not, but even if I was just an only child without a disability, my parents would have still been extremely protective of me. Yes, I was mainstreamed at school, but spending a lot of my childhood and young adulthood in and out of hospital and at times alone meant that sometimes tempers would fray. I'm no doubt letting my fear of rejection dominate, and I'm very well aware of how I react to rejection and have reacted to it, and I don't like it. Being an only child and often spending a lot of my time by myself and only mixing with people oftentimes older than me, I don't know what I want, but when I shared my house with another man for six weeks two years ago, the question of how I'd go when I moved in with somebody started to be considered, and share and compromise was one thing that came out of my six weeks sharing my house with somebody else who was looking at houses so he could buy a house of his own. Theoretically, it's easy with share and compromise when you have siblings and when you're socialized a lot. But when you are an only child and sheltered, it can often be challenging. It's why I like the company of others and my own company, but in small doses each. Somebody said to me that the fact that I haven't had sex before the age of 35 is sad, but I do think there are plenty of people who haven't had sex before the age of 35. It's not just me. In order to look into relationship experience, suggestions were made to visit a sex worker to help me unpack insecurities and try to build self-confidence, but in all honesty, although I'm tempted to explore this path, I don't like it. Exploring sexual services is something I feel is frowned upon, and it doesn't lead to a loving and caring relationship later. Not learning to butter bread or make toast or making a sandwich, let alone cooking more than what I do alone and stepping up to do a lot more for myself is no doubt going to be a turnoff for any potential partner. Either that's true or that's just what I've been told. So those are extracts from quite a lengthy email, and I appreciate you sending it in. And because it is such a vulnerable email, I'm not going to identify the sender. I think that that's important. I would say that this is another little segue we can go down with this subject. Any of us who have attended Schools for the Blind will be well aware of those blind children who were mollycoddled with the very best of intentions by their parents. A lot of it is due to a lack of education. When the blind child comes along, they may not have ever had any experience with blindness before, and everybody wants the so-called perfect baby, and so when a blind kid comes along out of the blue, it can be perceived as a bit of a tragedy. And I'm sorry to say that there are people in blindness agencies, sighted people, who treat bringing up a blind child like some sort of really complex pseudoscience, And I think the very best gift that we can give a blind baby is to ensure that their parents have access to competent adult blind role models. I believe this passionately. It can make the difference. It can change the whole trajectory of a blind person's life. If the parents are given the opportunity to understand that blindness is not a death sentence, blindness isn't this huge barrier, it's just another characteristic that you factor in, and you can have a fulfilling, rich life. And those are the messages that parents of blind kids need to hear at the earliest possible opportunity and keep having them reinforced. In the United States, they do a fantastic job of this I remember I went to talk one year, several years ago now, many years ago now, to a blind parents organization in New Zealand. And at that stage, I was a young father doing a government relations job. And I was talking to them, not just about legislation, but also my life as a blind person, a blind parent. And I was told later that. One of the staff members, cited staff members, told them afterwards, we well, don't expect necessarily that your child can turn out like him because he's one of the super blind. I mean, what nonsense is this? I've never understood this term, super blind. Basically, people will achieve at different levels no matter whether you're blind or not. It's just extraordinary. But coming back to this email. I agree with your reticence regarding the sexual services things. I think that's not really the issue. Based on your description, it sounds like the ends that you're seeking is the ability to feel some confidence in being able to do things for yourself and socialization opportunities. And then when those things are sorted, the other things just follow naturally when you have the confidence to meet somebody that you might care about. It all sounds a little bit clinical and mechanical, isn't it, if you choose to go down that other route? In the email that this person sends, he does indicate that he is doing counseling and working on some of these socialization issues. And I think acknowledging those things and the difficult task ahead is a really important first step. So I congratulate you for that, and I wish you all the very best of luck. And it is unfortunate that sometimes parents with the very best of intentions do precisely the wrong thing in overprotecting us. And we know what they say about the road to hell and all that. And as I read some of these emails, I do feel compelled to make this point as well. We don't need other people to complete us, do we? I spent about six months on my own for the first time in my life about seven, eight years ago. Gosh, the time goes fast. And I have never done that before in my adult life, I've never been without a significant other. So perhaps a different experience from what people are talking about here. And it was a really important six months to just get to know me and what I wanted and who I was. And people, whether they're blind or not, seem to be under tremendous pressure to pair themselves with someone. And it's okay to be single. You know, well-meaning people sort of match you, you know, you, you get invited to a dinner party or something and you're the spare and then they'll inevitably bring some other person thinking, oh, maybe these two are a good match or whatever. People somehow think that you are not complete unless you're with someone. And some of the most well-adjusted people in the bestest relationships are actually people who've come to relationships later in life. Now, there are some of those things that that previous email is talking about regarding having to learn to share a house with someone when you might be very set in your ways after a long time of living on your own and being single. But when you know who you are and you don't fear being alone and something just naturally happens because there's a connection, no one's trying to force anything, that's what tends to last. Maybe. The challenge is for some of us not to succumb to the peer pressure of thinking that if we haven't found someone yet, we need to jump in with both feet when someone shows the slightest inkling of interest. So perhaps that's another danger that we can consider when we're talking about all of these things, that if someone does show an interest, We are bombarded with such negative messages about blindness and our place in the world that we think, oh, well, I should just be grateful that this person is showing an interest, even when they might not really be our soulmate or the right person for us. I realize that this is a very personal, quite sensitive discussion, but it's also a fascinating subject. So if you have any perspectives to share on this and you would prefer to remain anonymous, that's totally fine. Just make sure that in the subject line or the first line of your message body, you let me know that you don't want your name used and you have my word that I will honor that. So if you'd like to be in touch on this, drop me an email to Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Of course you can also call the listener line. Uh, you can remain anonymous there too if you want, if you let me know at the beginning of the message, although some people might recognise your voice, that number eight six four six oh Mosin in the United States, eight six four six oh six six. 736, I would be very interested in other people's perspectives on this interesting subject. Robin Williams writes in and says, Hi Jonathan, this is my first contribution to the podcast after a few months of listening. Even in that short time, I have learned a lot, and as well as being an enjoyable and relaxing listen. (sighs) The tips and advice on your show have increased my productivity. Thank you very much for dedicating your time to producing such excellent content. Well, thank you, Robin. That's really generous of you. I would like to contribute on two topics. Firstly, in regards to online dating, I met my now wife online in 2014, and we have now been married for three years. My wife is cited, although this wasn't a necessity for me. I am particularly interested in the topic of whether one should or should not declare their blindness from the outset. I did, and I think this was a good decision. I just discussed this with my wife, who said she was able to ask all the usual boring blindness related questions, such as how do you use a computer and how do you get around before we met in person. When we did meet, therefore, we were able to have a very natural conversation From my point of view, if a person were to have a problem with my blindness, I wouldn't be interested in a relationship with them anyway. Also, while I would like to think my blindness does not govern many of my characteristics, it is nonetheless a part of who I am. Given that online dating profiles are meant to be a window into potential life partners, I would have felt almost disingenuous had I not declared my blindness Secondly, I would like to comment on the topic of studying mathematics as a blind person. I graduated with a master's in maths in 2010 and went on to complete a PhD in statistics. I now work as a statistical researcher in industry. This is all largely due to the opportunities provided by modern technology and a few key people in my life, including my secondary school maths teacher. Growing up, I studied maths entirely in braille with an uppercase B with additional tactile diagrams. Diagrams were either made with swell paper. What swell paper this is I'm sorry with swell paper using a Minolta machine with wiki sticks or by drawing on good old German film as I reached sixth form age and realized I would probably study maths at university. A friend and I, encouraged by our teacher, set about using a typesetting system known as Latex. This is essentially a markup language which is very popular in the scientific community. We were able to sit our A-level exams independently without the need for a scribe, which had always been required until that point. This system saw me through my undergraduate and postgraduate studies. Things have moved on a lot in the last decade, and there are now far more accessible materials online than was the case during my time at university. The support for mathematical content in JAWS and NVDA is certainly a great benefit. However, the biggest obstacle to young people studying maths today remains the difficulty in acquiring textbooks in an accessible format. Often the publishers seem unable or unwilling to create content in accessible HTML, instead preferring to issue PDFs which are not accessible. There has recently been a robust discussion on this subject on the Blind Math email group. Despite the ongoing difficulties, I am very grateful to have grown up in a time when studying mathematics and pursuing a scientific career was a possibility. I was fortunate to attend a specialist secondary school for the blind. I think it unlikely that I would have pursued a scientific career had I attended mainstream education. I also have huge respect for those who went before me and were successful in studying mathematics and other STEM subjects at a high level without the advantages and opportunities that were afforded to me. Once again, thank you for your work in putting together this podcast. Daniel Jacob is wanting to watch some stuff on Netflix via the website and he says when you go to the audio description page on the Netflix website using either Edge, Chrome or Firefox, you can easily choose a category such as action, drama or TV shows, no problem. But if, as a JAWS slash NVDA slash Windows Narrator user, you go to press the enter key on, say, Godzilla... In the action category, you'll note, using JAWS 2020 at least, pressing enter does not result in opening up the link to this or any other movie slash TV show. I did note, however, that if I tab over twice to the right, I can find a play button, but it's to a movie at random. It used to work beautifully with Internet Explorer, where by pressing the enter key, it would open up the movie to the one you chose where we could find the play button and we could see year, cast and crew and even rate. I was wondering if any of you at Mushroom FM had had the same experiences and or whether you guys could also maybe pass on your feedback to Netflix. In a live chat, all a techie was able to do was to tell me whether a specific title was available with audio descriptions. So I'm thinking that More people need to send feedback. If you could either help or pass along any suggestions, any input would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Well, thank you, Daniel. This is something I haven't come across before because the web is one place I never go to watch Netflix. I use my phone or the TV or the Fire Stick or the Apple TV, but never the web. But I did fire up the super duper Microsoft Edge and I went there with the currently released build. So I didn't go with a canary build or anything like that. This was just the regular Microsoft Edge that is out there for everybody. And I logged in and I chose TV shows. And then one of the first TV shows I saw was Bridgerton. And there are people at my work who've been raving, not just raving, but binge watching Bridgerton, really getting into it. Sounds a bit raunchy. I'm not sure if it's a kind of show I would want to watch or not. But I thought I'd have a look at this. And I did choose the link for Bridgerton. And then a link for play came up and it started playing Bridgerton. So I'm not seeing what you're seeing. But, of course, I am in New Zealand and I am using JAWS 2021. I don't know whether that is making a difference or not. But if anyone else is experiencing this, perhaps they can let us know that. And contact Netflix if they are. What's on your mind? Mu- Send an email with a
1: recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J O N A T H A N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864 60 MOZEN. That's 864 60 864-60-667-36
0: Off we go to Sacramento, California, where Ken has been sort of saving himself (laughs) to comment on a wide range of issues from quite some time back. So let's get to it. First of all, he says there is another way to deal with notices that are too short when plugging removable media into Windows 10 computers. You can have Windows 10 open the folder and display files on the media automatically You can do this by using the Open to Display Files option in AutoPlay settings in Windows 10. I use this approach as I know that I will want to find a file and take some kind of action when I plug removable media into my computer. I skip an unnecessary step with this approach. Autonomous Vehicles and Technological Guides I read an article several years ago estimating that autonomous vehicles capable of cross-country point-to-point operation on the USA road network would not be practicable until the 2040s or 2050s. I unfortunately do not remember the author's name, article title, or publication. I do remember that the publication was a traditionally reliable one. The author knew that he was going counter to the common narrative at the time, so made a point of providing HIT background and expertise. He had done theoretical work at the PhD level and applied work on autonomous vehicles. The author's main point was that there will need to be vast infrastructure improvements beyond faster cellular communication and better computers, which will take time to be developed and deployed. Before you dismissed the idea that autonomous vehicles will not arrive until the 2040s or 2050s. Please take note that there are numerous reports suggesting 5G will not reach coverage comparable to 4G for 10 years from 2020 in the USA. There are reports suggesting that 5G coverage will not be available for 20 years. The current 4G coverage in the USA is also not up to the job of supporting autonomous vehicles at a nationwide level. The underlying infrastructure problems of autonomous vehicles also apply to technological guides, aka guide dog substitutes. Electoral College and Senate My first point is that the United States of America's constitution, as originally written, was fundamentally anti-democratic. The creators of the Constitution essentially replaced a hereditary aristocracy with what modern political scientists would call a plutocracy. While the Constitution was amended over the years to reduce or eliminate anti-democratic elements, two of the original counter-democratic elements remain, the Electoral College and the Senate. The New York Times Daily Podcast has a very good, simple history of the Electoral College, that explains why it is anti-democratic. This podcast also explains why it is unlikely that the Electoral College will ever be eliminated. The Daily Podcast also makes a brief point about why the Senate is essentially anti-democratic. Simply compare the population of the state of California at 39,747,267 and the state of Wyoming at 572,381, according to the World Population Review website. While the USA Census Bureau has official data, they are in the form of Excel tables. I decided to use a website that anyone can use as my source. Please note that California's population is almost 70 times greater than Wyoming's. Please tell me how such a population imbalance is democratic – when both have two senators with equal representation in the Senate. A couple of commenters dragged out the old canard that the Senate protects minority rights. I have two questions for those that make that claim. What and or whose rights are or were protected by the Senate? And when does protection of minority rights become tyranny of the minority? Uber and Guide Dogs I find it ironic that people who used Uber when it was breaking laws and violating regulations are now demanding that people who allied themselves with an historic rule-breaking company and engage in the same law-breaking and regulation-violating behavior are now demanding rigorous enforcement. An independent observer might observe that these people are at a minimum self-serving and at worst hypocrites. Well, thank you for getting all of that off your chest, Ken, and some very interesting comments on all the topics you raised. So I appreciate that. I will just briefly comment on your Senate comments because I came across a pretty disturbing statistic after the Trump impeachment. And I think it bears out the point that you make. It turns out that the 57 senators who voted to convict Trump represent 76.7 million more Americans than the 43 senators who voted to acquit him. Isn't that interesting? There are some really fundamentally broken things about the US Constitution, but they ain't going to be fixed anytime soon, probably in our lifetimes, because debate on these things is just fundamentally dysfunctional right now. On to iOS things this week. iOS 14.5 Beta 3 is out now. And it's good to see the progression of the support for third-party music and podcast apps with Siri. It's been a bit rough and really since the cycle started. But in Beta 3, it's a lot smoother now. And it does seem to be learning your preferences as you go along much better now. So I think you'll find that with third-party podcast apps and music apps, By the time 14.5 comes out officially and various vendors and Apple have got it together, it should be quite a nice experience. I'm running a beta of Castro at the moment as well. And I can give a command like listen to whatever podcast and I don't need to say on Castro. And it knows now that Castro is my preferred podcast player. And even if I'm not subscribed to that podcast, or as Apple now likes to say, following that podcast, then I still get it with Castro. So that's extremely positive. And there was a very interesting article in TechCrunch just a few days ago. If you follow Mozen at Large on Twitter, I tweeted a link to this article that explains that it is not Apple's intention in 14.5 to give you the ability to specify default players for things like music and podcasts. What they say is that this feature in 14.5 is all about Siri intelligence and that it will learn. There's not going to be the ability like there is for, say, mail apps or web browser apps where you can expressly specify a default for different types of music apps. So it's all a bit nebulous, but it's about Siri intelligence, not about being able to specify a default. If you're interested in this, do check out the TechCrunch article where the explanation is quite lengthy and convoluted. And I tweet a link, as I say, to that on the Mosin at Large Twitter account. On the not-so-bright side, let's take a look at an email from Oase. He says, the purpose for sending this email is to raise a point in regards to reading with Voice Dream Reader. As an extensive user of this fantastic and awesome app, I am sadly saying that Voice Dream Reader has a very weird bug. This bug really messes up with Braille, with an uppercase B, in iOS in particular, When reading a document, as I'm panning through it, it goes well for the first few lines. Although, as I continue reading, suddenly my focus jumps several paragraphs down the page after pressing the right panning key. Then, I must press my left panning key to go back up to my original position. While this can be done for short documents, it is very inconvenient if I am reading a textbook When I reported this issue to VoiceDream support, they responded very politely, saying it is a bug in the operating system. On an email list, people indicated that the issue was happening with other reading apps too. I have reported this issue to Apple Accessibility, and so far no solutions have been presented. As my temporary solution, I transfer the downloaded documents to my USB drive and then open it in keyword on my Braille Note Touch. It is quite a frustrating issue, in my opinion. Thanks, Oase. It is, and of course, we've been covering this extensively on Mosin at Large since this reared its ugly head as part of a suite of Braille bugs in 13.4, some affecting only some Braille displays, but this one affects all Braille users in iOS. And I'm sad to report that this one is still not fixed in 14.5 beta 3. The reason why it starts off well and then goes pear-shaped is because this bug affects the auto page turning feature for Braille display users. What's happening is that when the page is turned, you're getting to, I think, the bottom of the page. So you could try turning the feature off and then manually turning the page. But I don't know whether that actually addresses the focus issue or not. It is a really unfortunate bug you know, Apple is touting iPads and other devices as a great tool in education. And here is an example. Uh, You as a student are being quite clearly demonstrably inconvenienced by this issue. And the fact that we've now got three betas in to the 14.5 beta cycle makes me really nervous that we are not going to get this one fixed before the 14.5 release. I really hope I'm wrong. For Braille users, who rely on their Braille display to do reading, sometimes for their work, sometimes for their study. This is a really serious issue. I used to present from my Braille display connected to an iPhone when I give speeches online or in public, and I can't do that anymore. You know, this is not just an idle whining. This is a really serious inconvenience for many of us who want to be able to rely on these devices to do what we have paid for them to do. And here we are into beta 3, and there is still no fix. Nice to know that they have fixed well and truly the issue with head devices and other devices that were affected by the wake-up problem. So that is really good, and it could be an incentive for many people who are stuck with 14.4 and the problems with waking up the Braille display uh, to switch to the public beta track, at least for now. Now, we talked last week about the lack of the back button on Facebook. I don't use Facebook enough to know whether there's been an update that has fixed this. I did see, I think, an update come out for Facebook the other day. But in case it isn't fixed, a number of people tweeted in, wrote in on this subject. Pam Quinn puts it succinctly when she says, at the moment when the back button on Facebook is gone, what you do after making a comment or whatever is double tap on newsfeed. This takes you back to where you were before. Now, another user on Twitter, when this came up, said that you can just perform the two-finger scrub gesture. And if that's the case... I probably wouldn't have even noticed that the back button was gone because I always use the two finger scrub gesture where it's available. It's better than going for the back button. So that may work for some people as well.
3: Very, very good morning, evening, whatever time you guys are listening to greetings to most and a large here from Mexico, coming to you guys about a phenomenon that has been bugging me for some time. You guys know that, for example, when you're listening to or watching something on the phone with apps like Netflix, Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, and others, when you get a phone notification, even though you have the voiceover speech off, when the notification sound comes in, you have a 2 or 3 millisecond audio fade out to make room for the notification sound, right? There are apps, though, for example, Overcast. I don't know if Castro does that. Maybe Jonathan could... Could enlighten us on that but you only hear the notification sound in the background but you don't have that annoying two or three milliseconds audio fade out while the notification is going on yes you could work around by connecting to a bluetooth device that supports the the ios 13 protocol where the phone notification sounds remain on the phone for example an amazon echo dot echo show or a Bluetooth headset, but what happens for those times when you don't have access to those Bluetooth devices? What would we need if, if I'm thinking that it's the app fault for, for this to happen? What would we need to tell the app developers to, to fix within Netflix, Spotify, Amazon Prime Video? I think that's where it happens to avoid the millisecond audio fade while the notification sound is playing. Yes. I have checked and double-checked, and the audio docking option is off when this happens. So if you guys could enlighten me, and if you guys have noticed this thing as well... Isn't
0: it interesting how something that one person just perceives as a characteristic is something that annoys the soup... Oh, I'm sorry for the strong language. Very sorry for the very strong language. It annoys the soup out of people. I can tell it annoys the soup out of you. That... It's just a function of the operating system. So there's nothing that individual app developers can do about this. And personally, I do see the logic because a lot of audio is normalized to quite a high level these days. At Spotify, for example, their preferred level is negative 14 luffs, So that's nice and high up there. And if you are listening to audio that is normalized that loud and there's notification that comes through, you may want to hear that notification. Presumably you have that notification on for a reason. So Apple ducks the audio whenever a system notification comes in, lets you hear the sound that the notification plays, and then turns it back up. So the audio ducking feature is completely separate from this. And obviously when you've got voiceover off, that's not going to have any impact at all. There is no way that you can stop this little bit of ducking that occurs in the operating system when a notification comes through. And the way around it would be to turn Do Not Disturb on and make sure your Do Not Disturb settings are set up so that even when you have the screen unlocked, you don't get the notifications and that will spare you of the issue if it really bothers you that much.
1: For all things Mosen at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favorite podcast app and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org in india
0: adi has several random thoughts and questions hi jonathan just writing down some random thoughts and questions he told you one excuse my ignorance but what is the difference between an audio interface and a mixer does accessibility also come into play before getting any of these an audio interface and a mixer can be quite similar these days And some mixes have actually become audio interfaces. But traditionally, an audio interface is a device that connects between your computer and any source that you want to play from or record from. For example, I have a Focusrite 8i6 audio interface at the moment, and I can plug microphones into the inputs. They have a headphone jack, some of them have many headphone jacks, and they also have outputs so you can plug speakers and other things that you want to essentially hear or record what's going into the audio interface. So some audio interfaces also now have basic and sometimes complex mixer functions. So the line is actually getting blurred between what a mixer is and an audio interface is. The audio interface, of course, then plugs into a USB port or some other port on a computer, or increasingly a smartphone, and software on that computer then decides how things are going to be routed. For example, I use Reaper to produce the Mosin at Large podcast. Love Reaper. And I can route different inputs to different tracks. So if Bonnie's in here, for example, or sometimes when we do iPhone things, if Heidi's in here, uh, we have two microphones that we're using, both High PR40s, I can be on one track with my mic, Heidi or Bonnie or whoever the guest is can be on another track with their mic. I'm then able to EQ them separately, balance separately, make them all sound good. All that intelligence is coming from the software that your audio interface is connected to. Unless you're doing a lot of live work or you have some really specific requirements, I would say that these days, most people can produce really good quality podcasts and other pre-recorded audio material with just the audio interface that meets their needs. I'd say a mixer is superfluous. For me, the work that I do goes beyond this podcast. I'm still doing some live radio work from time to time on Mushroom FM, and that's where my analog mixer comes in, the Allen & Heath Z22FX. On a mixer, you will find a series of inputs that you can plug things into, and each input Will have a knob or a slider control and you can mix them together. You can turn them up and down. So that's why it's called a mixer because with all of these sources that you have connected to the mixer, fade them up, fade them down, adjust the balance of each channel. And you can imagine, for example, that if you are producing a live rock concert, for example, and you have a four piece band with instruments, and vocals, and perhaps some of them play different instruments at different times, you'd probably have quite a big mixer where everything's labelled clearly about what's on what channel, and as you listen to the concert, you'd be able to adjust the balance to make sure that not one instrument is too loud, that the drums aren't drowning everything out, that kind of thing. So that's what a mixer does. Station Playlist Studio, the software I use to broadcast with and that most of us on Mushroom FM use to broadcast with can actually route different players to different channels or different outputs. In the case of my Focusrite, I have one pair of stereo outputs from the Focusrite going to a stereo input on the mixer, and then a second one exactly like that. And then my mixer just has one USB port. It's a little audio interface in itself. So I have the the Station Playlist Studio cart player going in there as well. When we're doing live work and Bonnie's on the air live or I'm doing live shows, then that allows me to plug microphones into the mixer, uh, mix them, EQ them, pan them, so they're slightly different places on the stereo spectrum, and do all of those things live. If you were listening to the Mosin Explosion New Year's party that we had to mark the end of the decade and the beginning of this new one at the end of 2020 going into 2021, you will have heard some really complex mixing going on because as well as all the music that we were playing, everybody in the studio had their own mic and that mic was connected to a separate channel in the mixer. It was panned ever so slightly differently in the stereo spectrum. So when you had headphones on, it sounded like you really were in the room and you could tell where everybody was sitting and I could adjust the volume of each of the participants. So it was really cool fun. So that's the key difference for live work. It's really hard to go past using a good mixer. So if all you're doing is thinking about podcasting, then you are fine with just using an audio interface. You may even be fine with just using a USB microphone these days. The one thing I would say is that while people will generally not listen to absolutely atrocious quality, the most important thing that people are listening for in a podcast is content. If you give people boring content that doesn't engage them, doesn't interest them, and you have a state-of-the-art, super-duper audio production setup, no one's going to care, you know. So content's important. So is audio quality. But, you know, with a USB mic and some of the really good quality mics that they have these days that can just plug directly into your USB port, if it's just you, and perhaps you're using one of those tools that lets you record remote interviews, so you don't have another guest with you who needs a second mic then you may be fine even with a USB mic and no audio interface at all. If you are going to have a guest in the studio regularly and you're recording a podcast, then yes, I think an audio interface is essential. You don't want to be sharing a microphone. Plus, if you have an audio interface set up so that you can record each of you on a separate track, it gives you so much more flexibility. If you're talking away and somebody takes the opportunity to go, ahem, ahem, and cough and sniff and all sorts of terrible, scratch themselves and all sorts of terrible things like that, you can mute that track. You can essentially take their mic out of the mix. And while that's not going to completely get rid of a cough if they're nearby, it's going to significantly lower the volume of it. So I hope that helps. It's a complex subject. Question two. Are you aware of any way of identifying capture on iPhone? I am talking specifically of sites where audio capture is not available. I think we will not be able to use Be My Eyes unless we are using two phones. Well, Adi, you could do it with Ira, but I appreciate that Ira is not available in India yet, so that's of no help to you personally. But you can use TeamViewer with Ira. When you're using TeamViewer on your iPhone, Ira won't have control of your phone. They won't be able to tap things for you, but they can see what's on your screen. And you know, now that Ira is not doing the glasses thing, I'm somewhat surprised they haven't opened it up more widely to English speakers because there's no hardware involved now. And if you speak English and Ira speaks English and you're willing to pay or you want to just use their five minute a day free offer, then why not? But anyway, perhaps that will come. I don't know of any other way to solve a capture. So if anybody's got some sort of accessible capture-solving tool that has worked on the iPhone, that would be really good to hear about. Three, you mentioned about your experience at the steakhouse where you were denied your already reserved table on account of having a guide dog. You did call the police, and this incident got a lot of media coverage. What I want to know is, did you happen to visit this restaurant again? Since on that particular day... You had guests with you. Did you manage to get reservations at another restaurant? Were you able to enjoy your meal? And what was the general mood post this incident? For many of us, such incidents can be very depressing and one can feel quite low for quite a few days. No, I never did go back to that restaurant, Adi, because when we went through the mediation process, they weren't particularly contrite. And I know there were quite a few blind people who visited that restaurant regularly who decided to give it a wide berth after that. So what we did was went back to the hotel that we were staying at. The hotel was glad to see us. They accommodated us in the restaurant. We explained what had happened, and they thought that was terrible. I think they might have given us a drink on the house or something, actually. They were very good. And we had a really convivial evening. We knew that there would be an article coming out and that we would have to take a complaint and and follow through with that. But although it is very hard, and you're absolutely right, it can really knock the wind out of you when something like this happens. My view is that if you let it completely dominate your life, if you let it upset you, if you let it spoil what could otherwise be a really pleasant evening, you've given them more of a victory more of a victory than they deserve. So it's hard, but I guess over all my years of advocacy, I have learned to try and compartmentalize. Number four. I wonder how many there are. I have used Uber extensively. I completely agree with you when you mention that the training of driver partners by Uber is not up to the mark. When Uber started in India, one would get only quality and well-trained cab drivers. However, for a long time, this is no longer the case. It seems to have become a numbers game now. These cab drivers have tie-ups with multiple aggregators like Uber, Ola, etc. Whenever a passenger, blind or sighted, threatens to complain, these guys are least affected and ask us to please go ahead and complain. It's funny when you, when you say, I'm going to complain, and they say, you do that. Like, make my day. Anyway, Adi continues, they are having no fear of being deboarded, It seems to be supply and demand issues. The situation with cab drivers refusing to take guide dogs is quite sad. What do pet owners do in New Zealand? Does it mean that a pet owner needs to have his or her own private transport? In India, we do not have guide dogs, but the situation with respect to pets having access to public transport is almost non-existent. Even most restaurants are not pet friendly. I was recently invited to dinner at a friend's place. He has a Great Dane, which is two years old now and quite big. He was finding it difficult to get his pet in his old car, so upgraded to a larger vehicle, which will be more comfortable for his pet. Not all pet owners may be able to afford such upgrades. Recently, a blind friend and his spouse got a Labrador as a pet. They were to travel to another city and take their pet along. Almost all of the travel companies, which provide long-distance cabs, refused to carry the pet. Somehow, they managed to convince one and were able to make the trip along with their pet. Now, my friend has started saving to purchase his own car, and his wife, being sighted, will be driving the vehicle. So for a blind couple, it is almost impossible even to have a pet here. Well, Adi, regarding Uber, here in New Zealand, and as you will have heard with Graham Innes when we talked to him, in Australia too, they do take it seriously. If you complain, they do go through a process. People do get deplatformed pending retraining. And if there's a second offence, they are permanently gone. But I certainly have encountered the drivers like you are talking about, where they've got all the apps on their phones. So here, the major ride-sharing services are Uber, Ola, and a thing called Zumi, which is New Zealand-owned. And they've got them all there, and they just take the notification. They prioritise, by the way. So I think Zumi gives them the best returns, I think Ola is next, and Uber is last in terms of the revenue that the drivers make, but they feel like they have to be on Uber because it's the most popular. So I've seen that, yeah. Regarding pets, they really complicate the narrative for service animal users. A certified service animal in New Zealand is really well-trained, and a certified service animal in New Zealand, unlike, say, the United States where they've resisted this, is defined by law. So only certain entities in New Zealand can certify an animal as a service animal. And the number of those entities is actually quite limited. And you have a medallion on your dog's collar or whatever to verify that you are with a legitimate service animal certified by an entity in the legislation. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. The responsibility is that the dog is well-behaved, the dog's well-trained. It doesn't smell disgusting. It's not shedding everywhere. You're grooming it regularly. You know, with rights do come responsibilities. But in recent times, we have had this clamor in New Zealand for people to be able to take their pets with them. And this is quite new. I mean, normally, if you go away and you don't have a family vehicle or whatever, then you either take your pet to a kennel where the pet will be looked after for a fee for a while, or you give it to a friend or relative to pet it. But recently, there has been this clamour to allow pets on buses. Uber has now introduced Uber Pet in New Zealand, and that has really complicated things here. Because some people who have not opted into Uber Pet have said, I don't want to take pets, and on and on it goes, and we've had to say, that's fine this is not a pet, this is a guide dog, and the law says you have to, and some of them just haven't been trained appropriately to know the difference between a pet and a service animal. So this trend has certainly caused some problems, and also, of course, when you get a pet in an Uber or a pet on a bus, anything can happen. I mean, that could be really badly behaved, and of course, this can be a threat at times to guide dogs. When you're on a bus and your guide dog settled, And you have some pet that gets on the bus and shows an interest in another dog being on the bus, you know? It can be a real issue. In Arlington, in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, Andy Squires sat at a keyboard and he wrote this. Hi, Jonathan. Listened to the podcast the other day as you were describing the hearing aids you use. I have bilateral hearing loss as well. What? What? And have recently been trying out the new Widex Moment Aids. I'm a musician, and the Aids were highly regarded by musicians. I do like their sound when listening to music and playing. The manufacturer touts their extreme low latency. However, I have had issues with navigating. I've had the audiologist create a program with all the filtering turned off, but still hear the tap of my cane making the background traffic noise duck down and back in. The audio ducking is very fast, but quite annoying. It's almost as if it's still doing some filtering, even though it's all been turned off. I'm intrigued by your comments how Oticon doesn't do this, but I'm wondering if the new more aids might be more like the Widex as they talk about the neural network slash AI stuff as well. I may have to try them. Have you had any experience with Widex, says Andy? Yes, I have, Andy. Way back, I used Widex aids for quite some time. In fact, the Widex Senso aids were, I think, one of the first digital aids. And I believe I got those in about 1996 and really enjoyed them. As someone who does a lot of work with audio, and you may well notice this too, all the hearing aid manufacturers definitely have a sound about them, a way of processing audio. So I think if you put a series of Widex aids in my ears and didn't tell me they were Widex. I'd be able to tell you they were Widex. Phonak has a sound, a sort of a way of processing. And Oticon, well, I'm not sure if I could tell if you put Oticon in my ears. It is quite natural to my ears. The last Widex aids I tried was the Widex Evoke aids in 2019. That was the hearing aid evaluation process that resulted in me getting the Oticon OpenS. I like Widex stuff, so I was interested in all the work. You know, when you read these brochures about what these hearing aids are doing, it all just sounds so epic and perfect, and the reality can be somewhat different. But what I was interested in was the way that they were using this crowdsourcing concept so that if you went to, say, a restaurant – That had high ceilings, noise bouncing around everywhere and somebody with wide AIDS had been there before you, they can sort of customize the AIDS and then save the profile and it knows the location and helps you to get the best hearing. That sounds cool. The trouble was the app for iOS was an absolute accessibility debacle. And I spent a lot of time actually making videos using the screen recording feature in iOS describing what I was doing as a voiceover user, what I expected to be able to find and what I was getting instead. And I sent them off to the Widex rep, who was excellent here in New Zealand. But I never did hear from Widex itself, you know, the the, the people who make the difference, the coders, the engineers. It is so hard for us to get to that level of these audiology companies. And it is really unfortunate because I think that we would all benefit so much from one of these audiology companies who would take the time to engage with us. And I nearly got there with Oticon. They were really pleased with my testimonials that were passed on through the Oticon rep and everything. And they said, would you do some testimonial type videos for us, you know, marketing? And so I saw an opportunity there and I said, I'd be happy to do that. But on one condition, and that condition is that I be able to sit down and have a discussion with the engineers from Oticon, the people who really do make this stuff, and talk about some of the challenges that blind hearing aid users face. And they said, sure, we'll do that. So let's do the videos. And I said, no, no. no. first we have the discussion, and I get the access that I'm asking for, then we do the videos, because... I get what I want first, then I'll give you what you want. And they said, okay, it's summertime. I think it was about August or September when all this came up. And they said, we'll get people to get in touch with you when the European summer is over and everybody's back. And of course, nobody did. The other thing about the YDX aids by the way, that I tried was that there was no direct audio input cable. So you had to use some sort of wireless solution The first gadget that they sent me to try and get this need met of being able to plug directly into my mixer and use my hearing aids, and also for that matter, the headphone jack of any laptop computer that I'm using and any number of other things, was mono. And it was this thing that you hung around your neck. So even if it were stereo, the idea that you had to have this thing around your neck and then a cable to the to the headphone jack I thought this is not progress and certainly I couldn't live with it being in mono not just for listening to music but you know mixing sometimes if you listen to things like the Bonnie Bulletin on this show you'll know that I mix that and I often do mix interviews where we have a panel discussion so no thank you I don't want mono and do you know it is amazing how many audiologists do not understand the difference between stereo and mono it blows my tiny little brain Sometimes you point these things out to an audiologist and they say, but it's coming through both your aids. So I have to sit down and explain really patiently that actually stereo is two separate sources, one for each aid in this case, extraordinary. So then they came back and they gave me this other gadget and I think that may have been okay. I think the latency was all right. The trouble was though, that it was this thing that had to plug into a wall outlet. And then you'd plug it into the 3.5 jack. So we've gone from a convenient cable. These days, I take that cable and I tuck it into my Mantis case when I go out. And it's just always there. And when I need it, I take it out. I can plug it into an ATM. I can plug it into any headphone jack. It is incredible. I would not have hearing aids without a direct audio input cable option. And I'd gone from that to the idea that I'd have to plug this thing into a wall outlet all the time every time I wanted to connect to my mixer or my laptop or anything else. No, the app accessibility was a real issue. I mean, they had quite a nice TV connect type product that I was connecting to my Sonos. And I have to say, the quality of the music that I was getting from those Wide X-Aids when I was listening through that TV adapter thing was the best music sound I have ever, ever heard from a pair of hearing aids. I mean, it was stunningly good. Almost as good as wearing a good pair of headphones. But the accessibility was just really, really bad. You know, I couldn't get things done that I needed to get done. So the combination of no direct audio input and that inaccessible app meant that I had to rule them out. You can read more on my findings in the article that I wrote at the time, which is called Now Hear This 2019, because... Every time that I've gone through a process of hearing aid evaluations, I've written a blog post called Now Hear This. Well, at least in recent memory anyway. So you can go to mozen.org slash now hear this 2019. That is all one word. mozen.org slash now hear this 2019. So I can't comment specifically on the compression issues you face other than to say that audiologists have told me on several occasions, we cannot give you absolute linear sound because they all have some sort of fail-safe, which is designed to protect your hearing from further damage. So if your audiologist knows their stuff and has turned off all they can, you may be stuck with what you have. So if you do try the Oticon Aids, either the S or the new More. Do let us know whether the experience is any better for you. I'd be very interested in that. Dawn is in Sydney, which makes sense because she was in Sydney when we last heard from her too. She says, hi, Jonathan, on the subject of clothing and dressing smart. I think it can be harder for women to choose outfits that look smart and have colors that match properly. I find that colors I think will look good together turn out to clash like mad. I have also found that people's opinions of matching colours differ. I can ask my sister whether a particular skirt will go with a certain top and she will say, yes, that's fine, then I'll wear it to work and a girlfriend will say, those colours look awful together. So there you are, faced with dilemma. Who do I believe? It's the perennial question I have to ask myself every day. Yes, that's right. Taste is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And I find this with my sighted children. One of my kids will say, you can't show that photo of you on the internet or whatever because you look weird or something. And the other kids will say, no, he doesn't, he looks fine. And, you know, on and on it goes. So it can be very hard when you can't verify these things for yourself. But if it's any consolation, it's not what's on the outside that counts. It's the beauty within, isn't it, Dawn? That soothing music ashes in another edition of the soothing bunny bulletin. Hey guys, welcome to you. Hey. So you weren't sure if we were on video and no, I wasn't. But sure, you, you still didn't make the effort to kind of you know look super duper majorly fashionably presentable just in well, case. Well,
4: in certain circles, because I am complete head to toe in Lululemon, that would be yeah, very fashionable. Okay,
0: did you want to make any comment on the topic of the dating, uh, either, f- you know, anything you wanted to recount or comment on any of the listener feedback that we've had on this subject so far? Um,
4: I've never, I, I guess I'm more famous for the people I didn't date than the ones I did, uh, cause there were more people. Right. Well, but... I
0: haven't dated seven or eight billion people, whatever. We're up to, no, you know, but, but I mean,
4: I'm more famous for the people I didn't go out with because they'd ask me, like, I don't know. Cause I was always very nervous about dating and i think a lot of girls sometimes are and so i didn't date in high school cuz there was really nothing to date and then <laughs> i mean nothing that i wanted to date um and college i went out well undergrad i went out a couple times and then in grad school went out some but never would do video or online dating i, I never thought that was a really safe idea i know I, I think i've read too many crime novels and
0: mm.
4: so, but I've always. It
0: does leave you vulnerable, though. I it think does leave ways, you very vulnerable, especially so. in
4: the era before cell phones. Cause mm. now you have a cell phone. You can sometimes get, you know, hopefully get out of a situation. But a lot of my date, I guess, whatever you want to call it, was in groups. So there were several of us. So it was equally matched with you know, girls and guys. Yeah.
0: You can get these, uh, did they have a thing in the States called Table for Six? It probably came from the States and you sort of just get with these random groups and they're like six people, t- mm-hmm. t- three w- w- women and three men and they'd just be randomly matched or maybe there was some sort of profile matching. Like match speed,
4: dating. You, speed dating? Speed yeah, dating kind of? Not, no, that that wasn't really us. It was just a group and we all kind of knew each other or knew of the people who were in our our um circle, I guess you might say, because cause when I was living in Kentucky, I hung around the racetrack a lot. So pretty much my social set were race trackers. But a lot, someone would come in, you know, they weren't there all the time, so they would come in to ride the Keeneland meet or the Churchill Downs meet or just be in there with a the trainer. So then they would join the circle, mm. you know. So the circle was always changing, and then. When I went to Arkansas, then some of that circle was actually down there. Some of them I weren't speaking to at that moment. But anyway, um, so yeah. yeah, I was, I was more, I guess for me, I was more concentrated on school and, and things like that. I was a bit apprehensive about dating a blind person because I think there's always some of that. That's all you can get thought, even though that's not true. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> not true, but there was always somehow in the, Oh, well, he's dated. He's got a sighted chick. You know, he's got a sighted chick. It's
0: funny how people associate sightedness with superiority, it's superiority. isn't it? superiority. And I've yeah. always,
4: until you, I've always dated sighted guys. Mm. So, and, and, but sometimes I would see couples in the guy, particularly, was very, uh, maybe controlling's not the word I want because they weren't like a domestic, you know, abuser or anything like that. But it was just, she and it could have been her not feeling confident in herself but she was sort of beholden to him for i have everything. seen
0: blind sighted dynamics like this yeah. actually with blind women and sort of overly caring paternal yeah. paternal sighted mm-hmm. men
4: yeah and it was it you know you live out you can't go anywhere because you're car dependent there's no public transport out in the wherever suburb and not that there was any, and I, and I want to stress that, not that they were in any danger or it was a abusive relationship, but that's something I could, could handle because it's almost like, well, she's at home. I know she's at home. I can, you know, do whatever I want. And and in a couple of cases, I know that's what was going on. But, yeah, I was always very picky, very, very picky.
0: About, <laughs> well, I'm honored.
4: About who I <laughs> dated. And um, friends would that, oh, you need to go out with – I'm like, oh know that I want to. Usually when you set people up, sometimes it ends so, in yeah, disaster. Yeah. And that's why and I made woo. the comment
0: earlier that, you know, people don't have to be with somebody to be complete, do they? You know, they can be quite happy.
4: That's interesting. And I saw something recently about that. It was this whole thing about how you're judged. You're more attractive if you're a couple. And in some case, you know, you go to, and I used to go to fundraisers and cocktail parties and things like that. And you were always the the girl, you know, there was always the extra guy where the hostess would bring in Mister Bachelor to find him the perfect girl, you know. And for some reason, it's more acceptable for a guy, a man, to be on his own. Well, he's just a confirmed bachelor, you know. He hasn't found the sweet sixteen, but a woman, you know, they call her a spenster or. It's such a terrible word, it is isn't terrible. it? And, and there's
0: no male equivalent. Is there's there, no what's the male, male equivalent of a spinster? I guess a bachelor, but yeah, but bachelor doesn't have that same sort of connotation. connotation. Yeah. When you think of spinster, do you think of some old person with their knitting? Yeah. You know,
4: <laughs> Where, you know, school teacher. Well, I love a story that I love to tell about my mother's aunt, my grandfather's sister. So that would be my great aunt. When my grandfather passed away, and I was about seventeen. When that happened. And his sister was very elderly in her 90s. And they went up to tell her that her brother had had passed. And I had met her years ago. And um she said, well, Billy's daughter, she must be about 16 now. I wonder if she's married. <laughs> you know, because in her mind, if you weren't married at 16... You know, there was, there was no hope for you.
0: Well, expectations are changing, aren't they? Because people are marrying later. Except, they are. except my children. It seems. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs>
4: well, there seems to be a, a swung to the left because I heard about someone whose son's engaged yesterday and he's only 23. So, yeah. So. But it it is hard because your, your friend sets are, when you're in college, you make friends. When you have, get married and have children, you have that whole school and sports and mm. mom group thing. And then when you're older and you're in the retirement home or playing golf, you have that group. But if you're single, it is really hard to fit in, and I don't think that society does enough for women particularly that choose either choose not to get married or they haven't found the right person. So yeah, it's a tough one. And I know there's a lot going on with dating and and just consent and and I don't think it's a topic for a whole other day. I don't think we do enough in the blindness community and probably the disability in general to talk about those kinds of things.
0: Mm. I have been using an app for We Now called 10% Happier, it's called. Yeah. And they had a series of modules and podcasts and things, a whole theme at the beginning of the year on this self-love thing. Yeah. And when people talk about it, it sounds so kind of – touchy-feely and a bit obnoxious and everything like that. But the thing is, if you're not happy with who you are, you're probably not really ready to be of value to somebody else because you sort of – you come to a relationship broken and insecure. Oh, and-
4: absolutely. That's why I'm so glad I waited because, I mean, I, there were guys that would have happily married me in my 20s. But I'm glad I didn't because it, it would have been a disaster. And I know that. I knew that then. And, you know, looking back now – I know it It wouldn't have worked. It just would not have worked.
0: But I mean, that said, it still gave you time to develop really bad toothpaste. Yeah. Oh, um, well, i had that since it, I was a kid. Emasculation. So, you know. Mm. But, um, you know but,
4: yeah. And then it's always fun to, like, look where your old boyfriends are. That's always fun.
0: Your old well, Facebook's terrible. You can it's, look. You can stalk you, people. You can look people it's up great. and you, you sort of, you know, what happened to that? I, I think I was commenting on this on the show a few weeks ago. You think, what happened to that? Knit, who used to be a school bully in 1976 or whatever, and you look them up and find out what And now
4: it's like a human rights attorney
0: or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. No, great. What's become of them?
4: What's become of them? And you find out that they really turned out okay.
0: Or, or not. They, or not. Or yeah. not. You, oh, oh, <laughs> what happened
4: to the valedictorian? I'm not surprised <laughs> that
0: this person's done time in the penitentiary. <laughs> the penitentiary
4: for, or, or whatever happened to the honor students? That's always the thing, you know. The, the valedictorian is doing time or you know,
0: yeah something. billy joel talks about this billy joel uh, was going through this phase i don't know whether he still does it where he would get up and give lectures and people would ask him questions from the audience and he'd be sitting at the piano mm-hmm. so sometimes he'd play some of his own stuff but he'd he's just a natural raconteur as billy yeah. and if you get a chance to listen to these he's put some out on cd but you can also find a lot on youtube they're very very entertaining he was talking about how you know you go to these school reunions, which I'm personally not a big fan of. You go to these school reunions and you meet people that you never hope to meet again or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them, especially from high school from that era, they were just cool in high school. You know, they they had it going on. They had the the cool shoes and and
4: all the girls, yeah, yeah, all yeah. The boys.
0: And then you meet them, and in Billy Joel's own words, you're like, "What the hell happened to you?" You know, yeah. and and what? the guy goes. Peaked too early, man. Peaked yeah, I mean, that's
4: true. Sometimes it, it is. It, you do peak too early. Well, I'm proud to say that the most popular girls in my high school are now my friends on Facebook.
0: Oh, does that make you feel good?
4: It makes me feel fantastic. Okay, no, then. No, really? I don't know. They were not. They were just girls. You know, they were girls. And girls are horrible, as we all know.
0: Oh, well, I'm not even going to go there. They on that are. One. We're not, awful. I'm not even Gosh. going to comment on that. Girls
4: on the equestrian team, girls in school,
0: yeah. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin
1: at-